Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teachatluke.co.uk. Hello, welcome to Luke's English Podcast. This is a sort of special episode, which is called Marooned With My Music. And this is based on a BBC radio programme, a long-running radio show, which I have actually talked to you about before on the podcast. That one is called Desert Island Discs, and it's a sort of national institution, which has been on BBC Radio 4 for many, many years. Um, I love listening to Desert Island Discs, and so does my whole family. Um, I'd like to do a similar kind of thing on Luke's English podcast, but I've decided to call it Marooned With My Music. If you're marooned, it basically means that you're stranded. Um, The concept behind the show is that um, guests come onto the programme and they have to imagine that they have been, for some reason, marooned on a desert island. Maybe a boat has crashed or there's been a plane accident or something. It doesn't really matter. The main thing is that uh, the guest has been marooned on a desert island and from the wreckage they've been able to um, rescue uh, just a few things, just a few items. Um, Eight records... Eight seven-inch pieces of vinyl, strangely enough, and a record player. Um, They also get um, a copy of the Oxford English Dictionary, in my version, uh, the complete works of William Shakespeare, and um, one other uh, book. And at uh, at the end, uh, one luxury item as well, which can be agreed between uh, my guest and me. Okay? So... Let's go. This is the first episode of Marooned with my music, and um, let's get started. marooned with my music. My castaway today is my dad, Rick Thompson. Rick has been working in broadcast journalism for over 45 years, including nearly 30 years at the BBC, where he worked as foreign news editor and editor of the UK's flagship daily evening news programme, The Nine O'Clock News. He now runs his own broadcast training company called T-Media, which helps to bring BBC standard television broadcasting to other countries around the world. Along the way, he has become something of an expert in the art of efficiently and effectively delivering information to viewers on television and on radio, something that requires a combined interest in all the big stories of the day, as well as the values of language and of public service. Rick is a man of broad interests and talents, having been a musician, a sportsman and a birdwatcher throughout his life. Last but by no means least, Rick has also been a devoted husband to his wife Jill and father to his two children, James and Luke, from Luke's English Podcast. So, hello Dad, welcome to Marooned With My Music. Thank you very much for having me on the programme. Uh, was it difficult having to choose just eight pieces of music for this programme? Yes, extremely difficult. I can imagine all your listeners thinking to themselves, uh, gosh, if I had to come up with eight pieces of music, which would I choose? Um, and, uh, of course, I like music from all sorts of different times in my life and, and genres of music. But in the end, I thought, well, I particularly uh, got into music in the 1960s when I was a student. And I think, well, I, I, I'm going to choose a lot of 60s music because that's what influenced me the most. OK, so we're going to hear quite a lot of 60s stuff. But if we go back to the start, you were born in the late 1940s, just after World War Two, post-war UK. What was it like um, as a child growing up 
in post-war Britain. Did you get a sense of what had happened before? What was the feeling for your generation? Well, yes, the, the world was very different. Certainly in Britain, it was very different from the way it is now. Uh, in in post-war Britain, we were still having food rationing. We had food rationing for the first, I think, six or seven years of my life. Um, and the government gave us supplementary orange juice and, and uh, vitamins uh, because we weren't getting very much from a very poor diet. We uh, We lived in those days in the industrial north of England in a big city called Leeds. Uh, it was polluted. Uh, the, the, everything was dark and black because of the coal that people burned in their homes. Um, there wasn't very much traffic and uh, there wasn't very much money. So people didn't go abroad for their holidays or anything like that. Um, so the world has changed a lot. And, uh, but I had a very happy childhood and um, I, I enjoyed playing in, in a way that kids these days don't seem to play. We'd be go out the door, get up with a gang of kids, go up and down the street, climb trees in the woods and everything else and get back home in time for tea. And, of course, the parents didn't know where we were, but no one worried about it. it there was a kind of freedom about it, and uh, I enjoyed it very much. Okay. And um, what was it – was your family sort of um, – uh, what kind of economic bracket were they in? Was it a kind of a, quite a poor neighbourhood that you lived in or a middle no, class? No, I, I would say it was it was middle class. If you want to be slightly lower middle class, it, it, it was uh, suburban Leeds and um, – my father was in a profession. He was very much kind of self-made man. He was a qualified engineer who became a planner, and he planned the new towns which were built around London after the war to house all the people who uh, were being moved from either the bomb-damaged areas or from the very poor housing. And he also started to plan the motorways, which uh, we now take for granted, but of course in those days didn't exist. Was music uh, a big part of your life when you were growing up as a child? It certainly was. My parents were very musical. My mother was a very good pianist, um, a kind of popular style. She, used to, she had uh, the ability to play any tune uh, just by listening to it. Mm. And my, my father was musical too. He took his, uh, his harmonicas, his mouth organs, all over the world with him during the war. Um, and uh, yes, we used to have sing songs around the piano at home. So there was a musical atmosphere in the house and uh, my older brother learned how to play the guitar and I started playing drums by hitting uh, tin pa can uh, sorry pans frying pans and things with knitting needles uh, as the little little drummer of the of the set and uh, later on of course I did start playing drums in pop bands because uh, in the 60s uh, all the kids wanted to play pop music okay so let's go with your first musical selection so you're going to be washed up on a desert island what's the first record that uh, you've managed to save today well i i was um as i say managed to get into these these bands uh, which played by then we'd moved to south london and there was a very thriving live music scene where all the kids on a friday night and a saturday night would go to the local hall and dance and you had to have a live band so there were lots of opportunities for live bands and i played with several live bands and um started playing with one which was quite good called uh, the corsairs and the corsairs used to open up with a beatles track uh, one of the first beatles album tracks from their first album please please me which was issued in march 1963 and it was a very it was a terrific track uh, because it was old-fashioned beatles music it was recorded just straight no studio effects at all they just stood up and did it um, and it's a guarantee to get them dancing. So we used to go on stage, the curtain would open, the lights would come on, all the boys would be sitting down one side of the hall and the girls would be sitting down the other side, and we would play this, and it would get everybody dancing. One, two, three, five! <laughs> See 
So that was, um, I saw her standing there by the Beatles. Now that's really uh, kind of rock and roll, isn't it? Um, which is an American thing originally. When did you first um, become aware of this kind of American new form of music, rock and roll? Well, um, I, I was a bit snobby at school. That word means um, I, I thought that rock and roll was a little bit uh, beneath me because I was very interested in jazz. I had some friends who were interested in jazz and I list, used to listen more to jazz records. And it was a very, very interesting period where so-called modern jazz uh, took over from traditional uh, jazz styles. And I used to go t and watch uh, the, the, the great modern jazz expressionists in, in South London venues. So I wasn't really into pop music until, uh, until the British bands started to do their own music. And even though it was they started off copying the Americans. They very soon did their own inventions. So I saw standing there it was written by Lennon and McCartney, and it was actually something a little bit different. It wasn't quite like Elvis Presley. It was just more energetic and more fun, and uh, it it was what became known as as you know British pop. Okay, um, right. So let's see. School. What, what um, you went to school in uh, South London, um, and. Uh, how were your school days? Well, I, I went to what's called a grammar school. It's a state school. In British education, as most people know, is a bit of a mishmash these days. In my time, it was fairly simple. Everybody took an exam at the age of 11. And uh, if you passed it, you went to a, a so-called grammar school or a high school where you were supposed to learn a few academic subjects. And if you didn't, you went to a secondary school where the subjects weren't so challenging. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible system where at such a, a young age uh, you, you are kind of successful or you're seen as a failure. Uh, anyway, I passed the exam and I went to a grammar school which wasn't particularly academic. It was, um, it was very, very good at sport. It was one of the best sporting schools in the country with a terrific football team and a terrific basketball team. So were you a bit of a sportsman then, Dad? I was. You had to be if you went to that school. But fortunately, I was quite good at it. And my older brother, Peter, had been there and he was very successful. So what was your sport of choice? Did you have one in particular? Football. I, I played football for their first 11 and um, uh, I wasn't tall enough to play basketball. They were particularly good at basketball and I was all right at cricket, but not that good. Uh, but I was all right at, at football and, and uh, we, we uh, in the year that I got into the first 11 team, uh, this was a fantastic football team and it beat every other school in the country. It went through the whole season winning every game until it went to... Uh, to go to find a team that was an equal one. They were in the South Coast, Brighton. Brighton and Hove Grammar School had also won every game. So we went down there on a coach to play them in a sort of grammar school's playoff, and we won 8-1. <laughs> did you score any goals in that I game? I did, yes. I scored four. Really? So what position did you play? Well, I normally played on the right, right wing, but sometimes I played in the middle as a kind of uh, little striker because I'm not very big, but I played uh, up front. Okay, all right, in a, in a good goal-scoring uh, yes, position. poaching, poaching. Okay, let's move on to your next musical choice. Tell us about number two. Well, I mentioned earlier that, that I, I like modern jazz, and people out there who are listening to this will have heard of Miles Davis, uh, the legendary American jazz, jazz trumpeter who was so innovative, and he, he pushed forward jazz into this more... Uh, expressive and mysterious zone where uh, improvisation uh, was the thing. And uh, I listened to this album called Kind of Blue uh, and played it over and over and over again when I was at university. So I knew it absolutely backwards. And it's a fantastic album recorded actually in 1959. Uh, with a superb lineup of two great saxophone players, John Coltrane and Cannibal Adderley, and a superb pianist called Bill Evans. And so I've chosen the first track on Kind of Blue, uh, which is called So What? And here it is. Thank you. 
I really hate to fade that out, of course. It's, a, I think, some sort of crime to fade out Miles Davis. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a record you have to listen to in the dead of night. Mm. It's not legal to listen to that in daylight, but, it's, <laughs> but it is a late-night sound, isn't it? Definitely, yes. Now, before we talk about your time at university, let's just go back to school again. You said that you, you did the 11-plus and you passed and you got into the grammar school. Were you a good student at school? Not particularly. I, I, was, I was very much into sport and drama. I acted in all the school plays and, um, you know, I, I did like my sports. I wasn't particularly academic, but I did okay. Did your parents have to push you a bit? Uh, yeah, a little bit. My mother was very fierce, had to do my homework. Um, and uh, playing in the band was was a bit of a problem sometimes because, you know, I was quite young and I wanted to go out and, and we've got a gig and, and, you know, I want to go to Croydon and play tonight and get in late. And they would say, what are you doing playing in this band? But I, I did love it and I, I managed to do OK, despite the fact that I didn't do enough homework. So you took um, A levels and you you did you did well enough to qualify for Oxford University, um, which is um, obviously a very sort of respected uh, place and uh, a place where you know many great people have been before. It's uh, you know high standard of education. Um, were you surprised to end up at Oxford, or did you feel like that was part of the plan? For you? I, I, no, I was quite surprised. Um, in my school, not many people. Uh, went to the top universities, Oxford, Cambridge. Um, but again, my older brother had managed it. And and uh, I thought, well, I'm much cleverer than him, so if he can do it, I can. Um, yeah, I was really a little bit surprised, but um, in those days, um, Oxford didn't rely entirely on exam results. They They had independent interviews with people. And I think they, they probably... Uh, found that you know because I was doing lots of other activities, I must be quite interesting. So uh, that's probably why I got in. Do you remember the interview for for Oxford? Yes, I do. Yes, I do remember it very well. There were two eccentric professors. They were like out of some kind of comedy film. Uh, you know, they were they were both uh, really uh, very eccentric professors. One of them was sitting in his chair, completely covered in cigarette ash, because he was chain smoking cigarettes and didn't bother to tap the ash anywhere so it fell over him and the other one was kind of slightly mad and was walking up and down pacing up and down and he had a twitch so he's every now and then his head would twitch and he'd fire a question at you you know what do you mean by melodrama you know and things like that and and yeah i found the whole thing very intimidating so what did you study at oxford then? english english literature english and so, well, I mean, English literature at Oxford University, what an incredible um, education to have. And um, I mean, how, how would you describe your university time then at Oxford? Um, amazing, uh, in that I was very fortunate to be there uh, between 1966 and 1969. Wow. And uh, anybody who knows anything about <laughs> what happened in the 60s will know that this, there was a student revolution going on, uh, notably in Paris, where they have a tradition of throwing things at the police. But uh, ours was not quite as violent, but it did have its moments. And it was a, an expression. The, the main reason why the students... Uh, became um they were very politicized about the vietnam war about apartheid in south africa about various issues of injustice um it was part of the generational thing uh, but also uh, the fact that uh, in our country unlike a lot of other european countries um the voting age was changing and in 1969 the, the in britain the the law changed so that you could vote at the age of 18 you were, it was called the age of majority. You were an official adult at 18, whereas before it had been 21. And this changed the relationship between the students and the university. In, in the past, for hundreds of years, Oxford University had had a technical relationship with its students, which was called in Latin, in loco parentis, looking after you uh, instead of your parents. And suddenly we were adults and we were clients and the adults were saying, we don't like this course, we want to change it. And we don't want to be locked into our colleges at midnight, which is what happened when I was there. It was a lock-in, and you could be arrested by the university police if you were out in the town after midnight, and all that stuff. And, and basically, the students said, 
um, uh, we are we don't want this, and we're not going to stand for it. And basically, the authorities didn't know what to do about it. The 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 students were, as they say in a joke, revolting. The students were revolting. Were, were you, I mean, were you revolting as well? I mean, did you shower? Um, how, <laughs> uh, you obviously, you were revolting against the, um, the sort of powers that be, at, uh, the powers that were at university. How did they deal with it, by the, the way? The, with difficulty. But the, um, I became the college president at my college in, in 1968, which is quite an interesting year. And, uh, and so I was a bit of a moderate. I was, you know, negotiating uh, to, to make sure that things didn't get too out of hand, but we, we got the things we wanted. But the, um, the other thing that was going on, of course, was that there was a cultural revolution going on, as well as some kind of political change. And that uh, the long hair and the the amazing psychedelic clothes, and there was a there was a soft drug culture. I'd be honest. I can tell your listeners now that I was not part of it, but there was a lot of it around. And uh, when you, you know, walked into our college, there was this kind of blue haze across the quadrangle uh, because people were, were smoking weed. A purple haze, maybe. A purple haze. And um, so it was, a, it was a very kind of interesting period. The music was fascinating. The fashion was amazing. We had swinging London going on. It wasn't just London, but it was mainly London where... Uh, the 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 youth were expressing themselves in a way that our parents' generation had never had the chance to do. Let's have uh, record number three, then, Dad. What is well, it? Well, well, I'm actually, if if you don't mind me going back to school, we were talking about me being interested in jazz and being interested in pop, and um, I th- I favoured jazz. I, I listened to a lot of jazz, and I went to a party. Uh, it was a friend called. Tim Burton, not the film director, another Tim Burton, and he had a, a, a party in the attic of his house. His parents had quite a big house, and he had a big attic, and he used to hold these attic parties. So we went up to the attic, and he put a record on, and I immediately thought, wow, that's one hell of a sound, and I wanted to know what the record was, and it was the first album from the Rolling Stones and this is in 1964 and you have to admit they're pretty impressive and this track is called Route 66 That was Route 66 by the Rolling Stones from their first album, released in 1964, all about um, a road that goes across the States to California. Didn't you do a, a trip to the USA with your brother, Pete? I wasn't with Peter when I went to the USA. Ah. I, I went across Europe with my brother. No, I was on my own on my university vacation in that famous year, 1968. And uh, yes, I, I got the greyhound bus ticket and i went across all the way to uh, to california a lot of it along route 66 and um i had a, a lot of <laughs> a lot of interesting experiences there <laughs> did you really can you tell us more about <laughs> not that? much no but i i did have my guitar with me i didn't have any money really um and so whenever i ran out of money i i sort of did this thing where you stand on a corner and play beatles songs and people would put money into my guitar and i kept on going that way i just kept on going where did you arrive in the states uh well i did a little little bit of work in massachusetts right um working in a summer camp i was coaching soccer as they call it in in the united states i was the soccer coach (laughs) at this summer camp and earned a few dollars and and then i set off on my greyhound bus uh, aiming for San Francisco and some relatives who lived in San Diego. Right. And did you make it? <laughs> yes, I did make it. Wow. But when I got to San Francisco, I didn't have any money at all and discovered that they paid you money if you gave blood. 
<laughs> so I went to a local hospital and gave them a, a pint of blood and they gave me $20, which was a lot of money. Okay, I see. So you ended up in San Francisco in 1968. Did you did you go and have a look at Haight-Ashbury? I certainly did. I played my guitar on the corner of Haight-Ashbury and I bought a, a fringe jacket, Luke, which you will remember. I know it. Because you've worn it. I, it was of this extravagant thing that the Beach Boys, you know, used to favour with the big fringes on the suede jacket and I bought it on on uh, Ashbury. I think Neil Young was, was known for wearing um, one of those fringe jackets in his uh, Buffalo Springfield days. Believe it or not, I actually wore it going to work at the BBC in Birmingham. <laughs> so you can imagine what a pretentious young man I was. All right, so after your time at university and, uh, you know, the, the travelling experience in the USA, you, you did graduate from Oxford University with um, a pretty good degree. Did you get a first? No, I didn't. I got a, what's called a 2-1. Okay, which is just the next best thing, I suppose. So what was the, what was the next move then after university? Uh, did you know that you would end up becoming uh, a guru of, of broadcast journalism? Of course not. I mean, the, the fact is, if you study English, it doesn't qualify you for anything. During my presidential year, we had a visit from the Duke of Edinburgh, the Queen's husband, Duke of Edinburgh. And he strolled around the college and did what dukes do. And um, I remember him saying to me, what are, you, what are you reading? Reading means what are you studying? What are you reading? I said English. He said, what's that going to qualify you for? And this was a kind of old-fashioned attitude that he, he seemed to think that education was the same as training to do a job. Well, it's difficult to explain to the Duke of Edinburgh that reading English is a real education, a rounded education, but you don't quite know what you're going to do with it. Um, I had done some work in '66 in London in an advertising agency before I went to university, so I, I knew a bit about advertising. And I got offered some jobs working in advertising, but to be honest, Luke, I didn't want to do it. Thought, Why? Why not? What was wrong well, with advertising? I just thought it was. It, I didn't want to spend my life, commit my life to selling soap or toothpaste. Mm-hmm. And I just felt that there was more to life than selling things, uh, and I know that's a little bit pretentious, but that's the way I felt. No, I agree. And and the the uh, the the people at university said you should apply for the BBC trainee scheme, and um, I didn't make it onto the main national trainee scheme because they only took 10 people out of 10,000 applicants but they did say you should you should go to the regional one where they recruit people to go to the regions of the BBC and that's why I started off working in Birmingham. I see. We'll come back to that story in a, in a moment, but let's have uh, record number four then, shall we? Okay, well I told you I, I played drums not very well, not as well as you do. Listeners, Luke is a fantastically good drummer, much better than I ever was. Thank you. But I was interested in drums, and uh, I was interested in jazz, and I went to watch the Dave Brubeck Quartet on more than one occasion. And uh, they had a fantastic drummer called Joe Morello. And he was the one who worked out how to drum five beats to the bar. Now, people hadn't done five beats to the bar because it's irregular and it's difficult. And, and uh, it goes one, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. It's like it, it kind of stops. It doesn't flow. Yeah. And, uh, and Joe Morello worked out how you do it by snapping the, the, the cymbals on your left foot. Uh, the hi-hat on beats two and four and uh, he did this this beat and they made a, a record called take five which became a worldwide hit and then he got better at it and on their album time further out issued in 1961 joe morello's got so good at five beats of the bar that he does a big solo in it called far more drums and it is so brilliant that i'd like to have this on my desert island and i can learn how to drum 5-4 on coconuts and other things that make a noise. Do you want the uh, the drum solo then now? Well, yeah, you, you, just a bit of the drum solo would give you an idea of how clever he is. Okay, let's have that. So this is uh, Far More Drums, Dave Brubeck Quartet. What's the name of the drummer? Joe Morello. Joe Morello. Okay.
So you moved to Birmingham and uh, started working at the BBC. So what were you doing at the beginning? I was a news trainee. So I, I was working in the newsroom, which was working both television and radio. And in fact, even though it said on the piece of paper, trainee, I didn't really get any training at all in those days. It was really rather poor. I should have, but I, I was just thrown out, you know, go reporting. My very first week at work, I was out with a camera crew doing reporting. I really didn't know what I was doing. But I, but I did reporting, and then I did presenting, and then I did uh, producing programs, and I produced not only just news but some documentaries. And uh, it was a very good start because you learn very quickly, learning by doing. Right, I see. Okay, so you, they just, you were in front of the camera then from the beginning? Yes, yeah, I was reporting, and then quite quickly I was presenting in the studio quite quickly. They yeah. actually put you on TV. <laughs> Thank you, Luke. <laughs> I'm just joking, of course. Um, did you feel nervous being in front of camera like of that? Of course you do. I mean, it's, it's quite exciting. And, and when you're on TV, uh, the red light goes on, and you know there's a lot of people looking at you at that moment. Of course it is quite nerve-wracking. Was, this, was this for the whole country or just for the no, Midlands? No, it was for the Midlands, though occasionally I did reports which were on the national news, but that wasn't the same as being live in the studio. Okay, so and after a while you stopped um, reporting to camera, you ended up behind the camera or ba even back in the studio in the editing suites and uh, in the newsroom, is that right? Well, yes, I, I, I thought I, you know, I wasn't really good enough to be a fantastically great correspondent and I wanted to edit the programme, so I, I, I actually asked the boss, I said, look, I want to edit the, the nightly news, do you mind? And he said, well, the moment you get an opportunity, you can. And he did immediately, so I think I was age 23 when I was editing the evening news for this region, which is a big region, it had 9 million people in it, it's a big region. You were 23 when you were editing? editing like the BBC's regional news program. Yes. And really? and uh, but you know this was uh, um, a fantastic opportunity which you wouldn't have had if you'd gone to London. You would have had to wait a long time before you could edit programs but in the regions uh, you know if you were if you were keen and and you made sense they thought you were sensible um, you got these opportunities. Right, I see. Okay. Um, so in Birmingham is that where you met uh, your now wife Jill Thompson? It certainly was. She was working in the newsroom, the fastest typist in the West Midlands. And uh, uh, yeah, we met in, in the newsroom. Okay. All right. So that's it. You just met in the newsroom. Uh, was it, you know, did it take a long time to persuade her that uh, you were worth uh, going out with, Dad? Or was she. Oh, you'll have to ask her. But uh, it, 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 um, it didn't take very long. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And after about two years, I think, of you two being together, you ended up getting married, isn't that right? Well, uh, we, we got together in 1970 and we got married in 1972. Okay. All right. I see. And you were still living in Birmingham at that time? Yes. Okay then. All right, let's have um, let's have another piece of music. I think at this point. Okay. Well, by way of contrast, I mean obviously I do love pop music and I love modern jazz, but I like lots of different kinds of music. Um, and a record I played a lot when I was at university um, because I like to have music on when I was trying to write my essays, and music that was instrumental and wasn't didn't have lyrics was less distracting. And I used to play this quite a lot. Now, it's a popular piece of classical music um, by Gustav Holst. His name suggests that he isn't English, but in fact, he was. He was born in, in Britain, and he wrote this suite, this very popular suite about the planets uh, during the First World War, uh, between 1914 and 1916, when so much devastation was going on. And uh, it was first performed at the end of the war in 1918. And The Planets is, is a wonderful uh, expression of the mythical meaning of the planets in our solar system. And I thought uh, the one I like because it's so musical and has so many tunes in it and has atmosphere uh, is Jupiter, uh, the bringer of jollity. Okay, let's have a little bit of uh, Gustav Holtz, um, Jupiter, the bringer of jollity from uh, The Planets.
I remember listening to Holst as a child, but listening to it again just makes me realise just how influenced um, John Williams was by um, Holst. Obviously, John Williams did all the music for Star Wars. So influenced by Holst, isn't it? Yes, it certainly is. And, and of course, I, I, I like it because it's space. Um, and I'm part of the space generation. Uh, you know, the moon landing of 1969, the space race, was part of my upbringing. And I'm still fascinated by space. I think the recent uh, probe which landed on the, the comet uh, racing across our solar system at extraordinary speeds, at extraordinary distances, an amazing achievement. I think it's astonishing that we can do these things. Did you actually see the um, the moon landing on television? Yes, I did. Um, I, I sat up and watched in the television room at my college, because, of course, we didn't have televisions in our rooms, and uh, and watched it happen. It was um, it was really quite a memorable experience. Okay, right. So, um, where were what? Where are we now in your story? We're somewhere <laughs> around uh, 1972. You just got married to the beautiful Gillian Hallam at the time. Now Gillian Thompson, and um, you eventually you moved back to um, work in London, didn't you? Yes, I did. I, I went and I got a job at BBC Television Centre in West London in the newsroom there, and I stayed there for 13 years doing different jobs which i enjoyed absolutely thoroughly and uh, it was an exciting uh, period of time where technology was starting to change and um uh, yeah i felt very lucky that i was doing different jobs there you, um you were the foreign news editor for the bbc for a period um and um does that mean that you had to deal with some of the big international stories that uh, happened at the time Yes, the, the, the people who did all the hard work were the correspondents and the camera crews who were out there. I was just sitting at a desk. <laughs> and, you know, but, but basically you had to work out what you could afford to do around the world, what the main stories were, where you would invest in bureaus. And, uh, of course, it was quite an interesting time. This was the late 70s, early 80s, and we had the Cold War at its height. Um, and the there were many other stories. They shot the president. They shot the pope. Uh, and and uh, we had a big British story in 1982: the uh, invasion of the Falkland Islands by Argentina and and the military action to get it back. High risk military action, eight thousand miles away from the UK. Uh, very difficult story to cover on television. But also the Middle East uh, was, was, was all, as it ever, was very difficult. Israel invaded Lebanon and there were stories, you know, continuing stories in South Africa, the apartheid stories. And I mean, it, it, it's, the world is an amazing place. And trying to decide uh, what should be on uh, the agenda uh, for people in Britain, to see, uh, to understand the world better, is a challenge, uh, but it's quite quite an interesting one. Mm. So, uh, having worked at the BBC for a number of years, foreign news editor, you did then work for the Nine O'clock News, which is the big national news program every evening. Um, all this experience does this mean? I mean, uh, uh, you must be pretty good at news, then. I suppose <laughs> is that, that is that a fair assessment? What does that mean? Well, I mean, if you got if you were in these important positions and you were at the BBC for a long time, it must mean that you have some expertise in this area. I think, obviously, if you if you want to be a, a an international journalist in particular, you have to uh, take a very close interest in what's going on and you have to read a lot and and feel as though you're uh, you're aware of what's happening um, but the, in television news it's there's an awful lot about technique that you're trying to translate this information into this program a half hour program which is a, a blend of studio the real world on location on videotape and graphics which are very important and you mix them together to tell a very concise narrative which has got to be as balanced as you can possibly get so that it's objective and impartial and it's visual so you're using the, the best images you've got uh, and you try and prioritize it it's quite difficult to decide what is the most important 
or most interesting story and sometimes the most interesting story isn't the most important and vice versa mm. but the but you can balance this out and say well if it isn't interesting it can't be that important or if it is important i have to make it interesting so it's quite an interesting technique to start at the, from the beginning of the day with lots of things you've planned but you you have to shape this program and prioritize things and make it a logical structure and of course every night it must be perfect absolutely perfect um is language an important part of that well i i guess you're asking that because i wrote the guide to how you write broadcast news That's for right. bbc staff yeah i didn't i didn't include that in your introduction well uh, no, he, he wrote a book as well <laughs> well i wrote the book after i'd left i mean it was a it was an internal document uh, earlier with give some guidance about um, what is good spoken English? Because people talk about BBC English as being a model of the spoken word. Mm. But what does that mean? And um, it means the language of newsreaders, that the formal written stuff that people speak is what they're talking about. Mm. And, and the audience has an expectation that it's going to be good English, no grammatical errors, no bad pronunciation. But it still must be the spoken word. It, it must feel natural. It must be the way I'm speaking now. I'm, I'm speaking what we call received pronunciation. And you language specialists out there listening to Luke's English podcast will know all about RP. Received pronunciation is what he and I both speak. It's relatively uh, informal but it's accurate, I hope. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to here record choice number six then, Dad. Well, uh, what have you, what have you chosen? We're, we're shooting into 1967, which was my middle year at university, and I don't make no excuse for it because the the um, the records that came out in that year and in 68 were so sensational that it's almost impossible to describe how good they were. And you young people out there, you, you missed it. Uh, but... Um, I was learning guitar. I, I played drums, but I picked up a guitar and I started playing guitar. And um, and then along came this guitarist who was just kind of so heavenly that it was almost impossible to believe that he could do it. And he was living in London. He was an American living in London. And he was called Jimi Hendrix. So how do I choose a Jimi Hendrix track when he was so extraordinarily brilliant? Well, I also liked Bob Dylan. Um, Dylan being an artist as well as being a, a, a protest singer as well as being an original musician very interesting guy and uh, Dylan came out with a record which also played into one of my interests which was medieval old English that kind of world and all along the watchtower uh, takes you into this mysterious world of uh, you know um, clouds horsemen castles mystery and uh, Jimi Hendrix re-recorded it in the most extraordinary manner on his album Electric Ladyland so I'm going to choose All Along the Watchtower by Jimi Hendrix <laughs> Must be some kind of way out of here Say the joker to the thief There's too much confusion I can't get no relief Businessman there to drink my wine Come and dig my earth None will level on the mine Nobody of it is worth That was uh, the incredible Jimi Hendrix playing All Along the Watchtower, written by Bob Dylan, recorded by Hendrix on his album Electric Ladyland. Uh, and that was your sixth musical choice. Now, after working in London for um, some years, you moved back to the Midlands again. 
Yes, I, I, I was asked to put my suit on and become a bit more of a manager than an editor and uh, moved back to the Midland region uh, to look after news, current affairs, regional programs on radio and uh, local radio and regional television there. And also I was the coordinator for uh, all of the BBC's uh, regional uh, and local news services um, in a, just a coordinating role. And so I had to learn how to you know, manage lots of different people. Was that difficult? Yeah, of course, managing is difficult. I don't know whether anybody listening to you now will, will, uh, will know what it's like to manage big budgets, big, big numbers of people and projects where you have to make progress. Um, uh, and I think management is a, a brilliant skill. If, if, you're a, if you're a good manager, pe- people don't like the managers. Oh, my manager is rubbish, and you know, oh, I've got a terrible manager. Well, um, you want to try it. And uh, the the um, the thing is that I think that in management uh, there is a theory that you have to whatever you do, you have to manage three things. One is the product. You have to manage what you're producing or what you're doing, the service you're doing. You have to make sure it's the best and competitive. You also have to manage the money. You have to manage the budgets, otherwise your business goes bust. And the third thing is you have to manage the people. And most people manage the product because they like to, and, and they manage the money because they have to, but they forget to manage the people. And uh, that's uh, you know why, what I think. I think that if you manage the people properly, give them uh, appreciation, give them direction, give them opportunities, uh, uh, and you get a team ethic going, then you can, you can achieve a great deal. You actually won an award, didn't you, for your... Uh, well, the, the, the news programme that you were responsible for called Midlands Today, which was like the, the BBC's uh, Midlands uh, news programme, it won a, a, an award? Well, yes, it, yes right? it did. I mean, it's not the biggest award in the world. It's hardly an Oscar. But, oh. uh, but the Royal Television Society of, of Britain gives journalism awards every year, and one of them is for the best regional news program and yes it, it did win win that um uh, and it was because it was um uh it had a great team and and the people who were producing it presenting it working on it were dedicated to doing the best every night okay well congratulations um let's have record number seven then dad tell us about it okay we're sticking with this magic year 1967 and i hope you don't mind that because um, it, it, you know, uh, it, it was just a, a good time for me. Uh, I was a student, it, it, and the music that kept on coming was a sensational. Uh, there was a British pop group called the Kinks. The Kinks were known for being a little bit, you know, raunchy, and then they came up with this extraordinary record, which was not at all like them, written by them, and uh, it's a classic. And Paul McCartney was once asked. If there was one song you wish you'd written, uh, which would it be? And he immediately said, Waterloo Sunset. That was the Kinks with uh, Waterloo Sunset. Lovely tune, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's um, of course, the view from Waterloo Bridge uh, has been celebrated by artists over, over 
the years, uh, whether it be Monet or whether it be Turner, uh, this view of the Thames River with the backdrop of London is, is well known. So it's already got some kind of mystery to it. But it's an interesting little romance. He mentions Terry and Julie meet there every Friday night. Some people say they they were the golden couple of 1967, the actress uh, Julie Christie and the actor Terence Stamp, but I don't think so. I think they were ordinary couple. Right. Um, okay, so we're sort of... Um, well, we've, we've done seven musical choices. You've got one left. Um, and, uh, well, ch- why don't you tell us about your last musical choice now at this point? Well... The Beatles were hugely influential to me, and I still absolutely adore their music. Um, Immensely productive. I mean, they produced a massive amount of music, and it changed so quickly. They started off with things like I Saw Her Standing There, very, very simple, get them up dancing on the floor, uh, and it it moved very rapidly into something else. And um, they were all so talented. Uh, George Harrison was particularly underrated, I think. McCartney, unbelievable. His voice, it was superb. John Lennon, incredibly original. And this combination of these talents uh, and, 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 uh, and Ringo was a much better drummer than some people think. He, he, he had a terrific ability to produce some, a different sound for every record, mm. something a little bit different every time. So when in 1967 their new album came out, I rushed to buy it. It had this extraordinary cover and I put it on and couldn't believe it. So Sgt. Pepper's Lowly Hartscott Band was just fabulous and i don't know (coughs) excuse me i don't know which track would encapsulate it but i thought i'll go for a fairly simple one paul mccartney again and i love this because simply because the purity of the sound and the simplicity of the song it's called fixing a hole i'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in and stops my mind from wandering where it will go. I'm feeling the cracks that ran through the door and kept my mind from wandering where it So those are your eight musical choices. But before I send you off onto this um, isolated, remote desert island... And by the way, how do you think you're going to get on on this island on your own? You, you, Not particularly well. Really? You, you need other people around? Well, it would be nice to have some uh, you know, human contact, be able to discuss things, argue about things. But I'll be arguing with myself, going <laughs> slightly mad. Okay. Now, as well as those eight records, you are also allowed to choose a luxury item and a book. Have you considered your your luxury item choice? Yes, it's a tough one, um, but I'd quite like to have uh, an endless supply of paints. Paints? Yeah, uh, watercolours, gouache, oils, and loads and loads of canvases so I can make lots of mistakes, so I can try very hard to learn how to paint. I think that uh, I can give that to you. Yeah, there you go. You've got your paints and canvases too as as well, of course. Yeah, endless supply. Endless supply. (laughs) Brushes, canvases, paints. Okay, so you can make as many mistakes as you like. Uh, Obviously, I'll be giving you the Oxford English Dictionary and the complete works of uh, Shakespeare, but uh, have you chosen your your work of literature as well? Shakespeare would would be absolutely wonderful because, you know, you can just read and read and read this stuff. It's so fantastic. Um, And people sometimes say... I don't get Shakespeare, you know, it's it's all a bit 
overrated. Believe me, it's not. He's underrated. So brilliant, it's almost beyond belief. Anyway, so I'll be happy with my Shakespeare, but I'd like a, I'd like a book of European history, please. Uh, try and make it simple, because I, as I travel around Europe, I realise I know nothing about European history, and there's a lot to learn there, and I'd like to find out about it. Okay, a simple, if possible, book of European history. It's yours. Now, um, at this point, I must remind you that um, if you had to choose one of your eight records, let's imagine that there's a freak storm and the records get washed away and you've got just enough time to grab one of those records from the surf before it is lost forever into the ocean. Which one would you choose? This is no problem at all. Even though I love the Beatles, I would have to choose the track from Kind of Blue, So What, by the Miles Davis Quintet. Okay. Or Sextet, I think it is. It's it's the Sextet, I suppose, yes. Yes. Uh, So What is the track that you'll have then? Okay. Um, Dad, thanks very much for being my castaway on this episode of Marooned With My Music. It's been lovely to have you on the programme. And uh, It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. Okay. Thanks very much for listening to the programme. And I'll speak to everyone very soon. But for now, it's time to say goodbye. for listening to Luke's English podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.